will this morning, the book of 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians, chapter 1. First Thessalonians chapter 1, beginning with verse 2. We always thank God for all of you, mentioning you in our prayers. We continually remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake, we, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord in spite of severe suffering. You welcomed the message with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so, you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. Your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it, for they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell us how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for the uplifting, encouraging time of worship. Thank you for the privilege of being in your presence, for the freedom that we have to do that. Thank you for the promise that your Holy Spirit is at work here in this, uh, in this building right now, accomplishing your purposes. Thank you that you know the need of each one of us, and according to that need, you want to minister to us. I ask, Father, that you would help us to be receptive and responsive to what you want to do. Take this time, Father, and in your own way, anoint it for your glory. Exalt your Son, the Lord Jesus. Edify your people. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The city of Thessalonica is, is a city, or was at that time, about the same size as Albuquerque. It was in a very key place. If you have a map in your Bible and you want to look at it, you can see that it's right at the closed end of the Aegean Sea. And it was a very key port. All kinds of things, products of every kind from all over the world came through there, and then from there were distributed to various cities around there. You'll notice if you look at the map, it's surrounded by a number of cities with which we're familiar in the Bible, Berea, Philippi, etc. Now, the interesting thing is to remember, and you can check this out. We're not going to look at it now. But back in the book of, uh, of uh, the book of Acts, chapter 17, you see Paul's visit to Thessalonica. It tells us that he was there teaching 
for three Sabbaths. Now, I presume that that would basically be about three weeks. And, and then he was, then he was uh, threatened and had to escape for his life. And from there, they moved to another city nearby, if you look at the map, to Berea. And it says about the Bereans, they were more noble than those in Thessalonica because they received the word of God gladly and then examined the scriptures to see if what Paul was telling them was true. So they had quite a different reception in Berea uh, from the city itself. But in Thessalonica, Paul was only there a brief time, and yet, well, he sent Timothy back and others later, yet Thessalonica became one of the primary centers of witnessing the reality of the gospel. That's what we're going to look at this morning. You see, I believe with all my heart that what we have in this little passage that we've read is God's plan for world evangelism. I believe this with all my heart. And I want us to examine that from this passage and a couple of other passages in the New Testament. You see, on God's heart has always been the need of the world and the need to reconcile the world to himself. That's why Jesus Christ came. We're told that Jesus Christ came to reconcile man to God, to heal that relationship. That's what reconciliation is, the healing of a broken relationship. And when Jesus Christ gave his life on the cross, it was with one sole purpose, and that is that you and I might have the privilege of knowing God and fellowshipping with him, knowing that our sins are forgiven and that we have hope for eternity. That was the reason for Christ coming. And, and there may be some here this morning who have never enjoyed that tremendous privilege of receiving the gift of life that God wants us to have that came through his Son, the Lord Jesus. To be reconciled, to be brought into that kind of a relationship with God, that we can enjoy his blessings, enjoy his guidance, his leadership, his provision, all that he promises to his people through Jesus Christ, his own son. Well, in this town of Thessalonica, they received the message, it says. Not only did they receive the message, but they watched Paul's life for that brief period of time. It's amazing how much can be transmitted in that period of time. But they watched his life. They watched his, his character. They watched his values. They watched the way he behaved in, in virtually any situation. And it says they became imitators of Paul. They learned by watching. One of the most helpful guidelines that I have ever learned was spoken by a man that I knew years ago. And he said, spiritual truth is rather caught than taught. Rather caught than taught. What you see, what you observe, what you can pick up from watching somebody's life and seeing the experience of their life and the reality of truth in their life, that's what we really understand and learn. Rather than just 
the teaching, the broad teaching of truth, to catch it, to be able to, to sense it in another life. That's what happened here. They became imitators of Paul, and then eventually, it says, they, they were models for that whole area, two broad regions. It says, in Achaia and Macedonia, two broad areas. People heard about it. They saw their lives. They saw the transformation, the change that took place. Now, there are three things Paul mentions here, and I want to touch on them before we move on into what I'd like for us to look at. Notice what it was about their lives that people observed. Paul mentions it in verse uh, in verse 3. He says, Your work produced by faith. Now, it's an interesting couplet. There are three of them here, by the way. Three very significant combinations of words or couplets. Work and faith. Your work which is produced by faith. In other words, all of the efforts that we make, whatever they might be, to serve God, all of the the efforts that we make in our job, the work that we do in our homes, by faith. In what sense? Believing that we are doing it for the glory of God. Remember, the Bible says, And whatsoever you do in word or deed, do all for the glory of God. So whether you're cleaning your house, or greasing a car, or painting a house, or putting a roof on a car, uh, on a house, whatever it might be, you do it, if you're doing it with this attitude, you do it in the, in the envelope of faith, doing it for the glory of God. It's not just a job. It's a job that you do, and you do it to the very best of your ability, do it with the greatest degree of, of skill that you have, for the glory of God. You work in the envelope of faith, doing it for the glory of God. Then the second thing he says about these people, they had labor that was prompted by love. Their work was done in faith, but the labor, and what's the difference between work and labor? Well, I believe Paul was talking about work as we've described it just now. The labor of love are those actions that we communicate to people to serve them in a variety of ways. We would call them acts of courtesy, acts of kindness, acts of generosity, whatever it might be that we do to serve another person is a labor, and it's based on love. And you remember we said on other occasions here, and I just repeat to remind us, love, biblical love, is an act of the will. It's not an emotion. Our society has caused us to think of love as an emotion. They've sentimentalized love. They've romanticized love. They've caused it to be something that we do because we feel like it. That's not biblical love. Biblical love is something that we do regardless of how we feel. We do it out of obedience. 
You remember John 13, 34, and 35 says, A new commandment I give you, that you love one another. As I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, if you have loved one for another. But notice at the very beginning he says, it's a commandment. And a commandment is not responded to on the basis of feeling. You respond to commandments by choice. You choose to obey or you choose to disobey, whichever you want. But it's an act of the will, not an emotion. Thus, love, biblical love, is an act of the will. In fact, do you know, I believe with all my heart, when God prompts us and we respond to demonstrate love to someone that really doesn't deserve it, that's one of the greatest testimonies that we can have. To show love to someone that really doesn't deserve it, whether that is an act of kindness, an act of forgiveness, whatever it might be, to demonstrate that kind of love. That's what Paul is talking about. Labor of love. And when you see that, that in itself is a witness. That's what Jesus said. By this, by the fact that you love one another in this way, shall all men know that you are my disciples, if you have love one for another. That's what was taking place here. People all through that area were seeing what was taking place among these people in, in Thessalonica. And they saw the results, this labor of love. And then the final thing he says that was demonstrated by them was endurance inspired by hope. Remember in 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty-eight, it says that we are to, to, to endure, to keep at it continually. And the basis for that, the reason for that, or the basis really on which we can do that, is the matter of hope. Be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. How do we do that except knowing that there is hope, hope for the future? We may not see the result of it right now. We may not see the fruit of it immediately, but the hope that we have, that God sees and, and, and honors and will use these gestures of, of serving Him on the basis of hope, steadfast, unmovable, abounding in the work of the Lord, based on hope. Romans 15.13 says this, Now, May the God of hope fill you with joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. God is a God of hope. And when we believe that he is in control and he is going to fulfill his word and he's going to keep his promises to us and he's going to guide us and use us the way he wants, then our, our endurance, if you want to call it that, our stick-to-itiveness is based on the matter of hope. God is in control, and in his own time, this is going to work out just right. Well, these are the qualities, you see, that these people demonstrated and that Paul was, was extolling when he wrote this book to them. 
And this is what other people saw throughout that area. Now, in doing this, they became models. Now, let me go back a moment to a, to a, a situation that took place in the, in the second century. There was, a, there was a man by the name of Ignatius. And for whatever reasons, he felt that it was necessary to make a division between what we now think of as the clergy and the laity. And from that time on, that division became very prominent. And even today, that division exists very strongly. And there are there are many, many people who are followers of Jesus Christ, who believe in Christ with all their hearts and are seeking to follow him, who feel that, that it's the gifted preachers and missionaries and teachers that should be doing this work of, of spreading the gospel. That's not unusual. That, that goes on all over. Everywhere in the world in which I've traveled, that exists. And we have forgotten that God's plan was exactly what we see taking place in this little story about the Thessalonians. They were the ones who became the models. Go back, if you will, to Acts 8.1. Acts 8.1 tells us that a persecution came on the church and they were all scattered abroad. Then Acts 8.4 says, oh, by the way, in, in the first verse it says, they were all scattered abroad. Notice the phrase, except the apostles. The apostles were not part of that first surge in which the church spread. Those were the gifted men that, that had been with Jesus. They were the teachers. They were the prepared guys. But they weren't the ones who did it. The people that were spread abroad, all those people, today we would say the secretaries, the teachers, the bankers, the car mechanics, the painters, all those people. In verse 4 it says, and everywhere they went, they ceased not to teach the word. See, that's how the word spread. And I, I believe with all my heart, and I say to you in all sincerity, having been involved in a number of large crusades, both in the United States and in Latin America and in other countries, and I thank God for the good report we had this morning of the large number of people that turned to Christ in that meeting in, in Anaheim, and for Meetings of that kind that go on. I think, I, I think God is working and using them. But I still say to you with all my heart and the conviction that God has placed on my heart, that is not his original purpose. His plan was that every believer should touch another life for his glory. That every one of us should be sharing our lives. That's why he said in Acts 1.8, you shall be my witnesses. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the earth. 
I believe that. I believe that God's plan has always been a person, just one person. For example, take the story of Ananias. In chapter 9 of the book of Acts, Ananias, it says, was a disciple. This is from verse 10 through 19, if you want to look at it. He was a disciple. He wasn't particularly gifted that we know of. He was a, he was a, a, a sincere, devoted follower of Jesus Christ. And God came to him and gave him a message. And Ananias, one man, in one point of time, touched one life and changed the course of history. He went and talked to Saul of Tarsus, who became Paul the Apostle, as you remember. He went in fear. In fact, he questioned God, you remember? He said, you sure you've got the right person? Because Paul had come, Saul at that time had come, with the purpose of killing all the Christians. And now he, as a Christian, was going to go and present himself to this man. But he obeyed God. One man, at one moment, making a permanent difference, changing the course of history. Or take the story of Philip. In the 8th chapter of Acts, verse 26 and following there, Philip, again, Philip was one of the deacons that had been chosen in Acts 6. But it doesn't say that he was particularly gifted, but he was on the road and he saw the chariot, you remember? God told him to go down to a certain place and the chariot carrying this man from Ethiopia went by and God said, go and talk to him. He did. He jumped in the carriage with him, talked with him. And you remember, the man responded to the gospel and was baptized. And do you know that changed the course of the history of that country? That man went back, and you can look back through history and see it, and took the message, and that message began to permeate the whole country at that time. One man touching one life changing the course of history for a whole country. Now, my friends, those are, not, those are not stories that we can sort of look at and say, well, yeah, that's great, but I'm not, you know, I'm not Ananias and I'm not Philip. No, but you are Mary and you are Henry and you are Joe and you are George and you are whoever you might be, and God can do the very same with your life. Touch one life and make a permanent difference. And who knows what might happen. One life. God has always chosen to use people in that way. Notice in Philip's case, in chapter 8, the sequence of things that, that took place in his, in his life. Because I think there, it's a good outline for you and for me when we seek to touch somebody's life. First of all, in Act, this is in Acts, the 8th chapter now, beginning with verse 26. And there are three things that, uh, that Philip did. First, it says, he opened his mouth. This is in, uh, let's see here, 
trying to find the right verse, and I can't. 35? Well, before that. Anyway, open. here it is. Yeah, 35, thank you. Then Philip began. In some versions it says he opened his mouth began with that very passage of Scripture. Philip was willing to talk. You know, many times we're afraid to say anything. We think, I don't want to offend anybody. Well, the way in which we say it may make all the difference in the world. So Philip opened his mouth with with the truth. Second thing we see is he began where the person was. He began where the man was. He didn't start about, well, let me tell you about my experience or let me tell you about the church I go to or let me tell you about this or the last book I've read or whatever. He started where the man was. He took time to find out where this fellow was in his thinking. And beginning there, this man was reading the scripture and so Philip picked it up from there. Beginning there, what did he do? The next thing it says, he told him about Jesus. Not about anything else. Not about a church. Not about a message of theology. Not about a doctrine. Not about anything else. He just told him the, the good news about Jesus. It isn't, that, it isn't that difficult, my friends. God wants each of us to be channels through which he can do this. Touch another life for his glory. Well, I think this is what it's talking about in in Second uh, Timothy two two. Some of you know that verse. Paul was talking to this spiritual son that he had, Timothy, and he says to him, "The things that you have heard me say." Remember back in in the story we've just read about Thessalonians. They imitated Paul. Well, Paul is still using that that process here. He says, The things that you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses entrust to reliable or faithful men or people who will also be qualified to teach others. I I believe that's the formula that God has in mind for the spread of the gospel. Let me tell you a story. I was in uh, Nigeria, and uh, I met a man uh, from Britain. His name is Bernie Dodd. He's a little fella, very unpretentious. If you saw him, uh, he looks like Casper Milk Toast, you know, and and you wouldn't. He doesn't exactly come on strong, but he's a delightful guy. Well. He introduced me to a Nigerian, big, tall, beautiful black man by the name of Moses. And uh, I sat down under a tree with Moses and just kind of started to ask questions. He, he was a believer. I had heard that God had used him in a unique way to, to reach people for Christ. He's, at that time, he was a student in the university there. So I was talking with Moses. And I said, Moses... I understand that the Lord has used you to uh, 
to, to, to win a number of people to the Lord. In fact, I said, I, I'd like to know, I, I'm sure this isn't important, and you probably haven't kept track, but how many people do you think God has allowed you to lead to Christ? And he lowered his head in a very honestly humble way. He said, well, I'm not sure, but I suppose around 300. I said, how'd you do it? He said, just talking to people. Just talking to them. Letting them know I care. Some didn't want to hear. Some did. But he said, I just, I just make myself available and talk to people. Well, that's what Philip did. He made himself available and talked to Saul of Tarsus, or to the Ethiopian, and told him about Jesus. You may remember, I think I've told this story here before, <clears throat> about a man in Ecuador. Uh, no, it wasn't either. It was in Costa Rica. We lived in both places. It was Costa Rica. He was a uh, collector, a bill collector, for the national airline. What they do down there is they buy their tickets on credit and pay them off a month at a time, and this fellow would go around all over the city picking up the payments. His name is Jorge Chavez. Jorge has a sixth-grade education. Leading him to the Lord and discipling him while we were in Costa Rica. And uh, I went back to visit several years later. Jorge said, I want to tell you something. They gave me a special celebration for my birthday when I was 50 years old. I said, oh, what'd they do? They blindfolded me, and they told me they were going to take me to a special restaurant. So I got in the car, and they drove around, and I got all mixed up. I didn't know where we were. Finally, they stopped. We got out. They took the blindfold off, and we were out in the country in front of this big building, like a warehouse. And he said, I told them, I said, I thought we were going to a restaurant. And they said, well, let's go in and see. So they walked in, and here were 350 people that he had influenced to Christ, going around, collecting bills all over the city of San Jose, Costa Rica. One man just talking to people. My friends, these are not, these are not unusual men. They're just honest, sincerely committed followers of Jesus who are willing to talk to people. And I say to you again this morning, I believe with all my heart, this is God's plan for world evangelism. There was a man a few years ago. His name was Frank Laubach. And he wanted to help people learn to read. And he started a program where he had developed some materials where you, a person, could help another person learn to read. And he called it each one, teach one. Well, I'm not sure Mr. Laubach is still alive, and if he is, I'll ask his forgiveness, but I think we could take that as a, a little motto, only change it. Each one, reach one. I think we can do that. 
just being willing to involve ourselves in talking to people. Listen to the words of this song. I think they'll be clear enough for you to follow what happens. It's based on the story of the breaking of the bread. Along the shores of Galilee, when Christ five thousand fed, not one was omitted in the breaking of the bread. Today they die in every land. They die in want and dread, for they have been omitted in the breaking of the bread. Lord, I would give them the bread of life, the living water too. My heart cries out, Oh, here am I, ready thy That's all he asks. Willing, ready, thy will to do. Someone that you can touch, make a permanent difference in one life. Let me finish this morning by giving you four aspects of how this will take place from the example of Jesus, Acts 10.38. Acts 10.38. Peter is teaching, and he comes to this statement. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil because God was with him. Now here we have four things that tells us about Jesus' ministry. Number one, he was anointed Number two, he went about doing good. Number three, he went about healing. And number four, God was with him. There are, there are open avenues for you and for me to be involved in this very same kind of a ministry. We have been anointed. Those who know Jesus as their personal Savior, you have been anointed by the Holy Spirit, and placed into the family of God. And the Holy Spirit dwells in you. 
So that is, that is taken very clearly for granted that, that a person who is a follower of Jesus has been anointed by God to be an instrument for his glory. The second thing it says, he went about doing good. Remember what we talked about earlier about the Thessalonians? That one of the things that was evident was their labor of love? Well, Jesus was full, if you please, of the labor of love. He went about doing good to people, helping them, encouraging them, teaching them, giving of himself to them. Shepherding them, if you please. We can do that. Doing good. Pray that God will show you someone in the circle of your acquaintances, not necessarily friends, not people that you know real well, the circle of your acquaintances, someone for whom you can do something good. Whatever that might be. Mow their lawn. Repair a flat tire. Fix a meal, whatever it might be. An acquaintance. It may break the dam and open the door for you to be able to talk with them. That's all it takes. Then it says, and this one will cause a little question on your part, perhaps, it says that he went about healing all who were oppressed of the devil. That's a ministry you can have that I can have. Let me explain why. I'm not talking here necessarily of the casting out of demons, though that may be part of it. I'm talking here about the ministry of healing that takes place according to James 5.16. Confess your faults to one another. Pray for one another that you may be healed. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man, avails much. There is a healing that takes place when someone cares enough to be willing to listen and to pray with us, even if they can't give us answers, just to know that they care and they're willing to listen and get involved with us and empathize with us and pray with us. A healing process begins. I believe that with all my heart. I've experienced that in my counseling ministries. The listening that we can provide is a bomb of healing. A man said this, it's impossible to overemphasize the immense need that people have to be really listened to, to be taken seriously, and to be understood. And when we do that, when we listen and when we seek to take them seriously and and to try to understand. When we do that, there's a healing that begins. And then finally it says, and God was with him. And God is with you. If you know Jesus Christ, God is with you. He says that. Let your way of life be without without, uh, covetousness and be content with such things as you have because he has said, I will Never leave you or forsake you. That's Hebrews 13, 5 and 6. Therefore, we may boldly say, The Lord is my helper. 
I will not fear what man can do to me. God is with you. And as you reach out this week and try to touch a life, just one life, you'll be surprised what might happen. One life, touching one life, can change the course of history. Maybe not for a country, but for a family, and who knows how many more. One life. Let's pray. Father, this this seems to make so much sense, and yet we seem to be so reluctant to uh, to practice it. I pray that you would take this message now and that it wouldn't be a a burdensome thing to anybody, but rather that it would be an encouraging thing to realize that you want to use us in a very significant way just to touch one life that can touch another life. Help us to see the potential of this, Father, the tremendous potential of multiplying our lives through one other life. Help us to understand it Help us to be willing to do it. Now, we talked a moment ago, and while our heads are still bowed, I I want to ask if there are some here that have not yet experienced what we've been talking about, the reality of Christ in your life and the joy that he wants to bring and the forgiveness that he wants you to have through the reconciliation with God. You've never taken the step to ask God to take control of your life and to give yourself to him because of Jesus' death. You've never asked for forgiveness. You've never received Christ as your personal Savior and you'd like to this morning. I wonder if you'd just put your hand up if you're here. You've never done it and you'd like to do it today.